Good morning, Three Circle Church. Let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever needed to talk to someone? You were in a situation, you knew they could help you. And so you called them, and of course you got no answer. Went to voicemail. You leave a message that says, you know, get back with me, I really need your help. And you wait, you hear nothing, so you text them. And you say, hey, give me a call back, I need you for something. And they never answer. And so you call again, they'll leave another message, you text again, leaving another message, and over and over and over it goes, and they never respond to anything. What does that make you feel? Makes you feel frustrated, right? I would ask you to raise your hand if the one who frustrates you the most is sitting next to you right now, uh, because it seems like it works that way sometimes. But it is a frustrating thing, and I'll ask you this, how frustrating would it be if the one you needed help from and the one that you're not hearing from is God. You see, that's the situation that David found himself in in Psalm 13, which we're going to look at today. He's down, he's dejected, he's a, a man of faith, but he is deep in despair. And so let's read first, let's read Psalm 13 and see what he says about this period in his life. He says, O Lord, or how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now to understand exactly what's going on in Psalm 13, you have to get a little bit of background. If you go back and read the story of the, uh, of the life of David starting, I think in about 1 Samuel chapter 16 or so, maybe further back than that. But some of the highlights of that is he's anointed to be king while he's just a, a young boy, a teenager. Saul is still king, however, and so he won't take the throne until Saul is removed from the throne. And uh, you know the story then, how he shows up one day at a battle scene and no one's uh, willing to fight Goliath and this young boy goes out there and kills Goliath and uh, immediately becomes a hero to the nation of Israel. He became so popular that when Saul and David were riding into the city together to celebrate some victories, that the women in the city began to get their tambourines and begin to dance and to sing. And the song that they sang was that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So immediately the word of God says that from that moment on, Saul had his eye on David. He became jealous and even paranoid that somehow David was going to become so popular that he would take the throne. So David, Saul decided he was going to kill David. He attempted to kill him himself. He arranged circumstances where others might be able to kill him. And because of that, David had to go on the run. 
And so for years now, at the writing of Psalm 13, for years, David has been Israel's most wanted fugitive. Everyone is out to kill him. He's living and hiding in a desolate wilderness. He's hiding behind rocks and in caves. He's foraging for food just to get enough to eat, just enough to survive. So after years of that, David finds himself in the deep depths of despair. Now, a lot of things can drive a person to despair, but sometimes the catalyst for despair is the simple length of the trial. You see, it seems like we can all handle situations if we just know how long they're going to last. If we know how long the trial will be, we'll hang in there and we'll get through it. But we don't always know. Sort of like me, whenever the doctor says I have to have an MRI. Soon as I hear MRI, I freak out. Uh, I'm claustrophobic and and the idea of being shoved into this tube and it being right here in front of my face, I mean, I break out into a cold sweat. And so when he says you need an MRI, I say, okay, here, you know, here's the, the criteria. It's got to be an open MRI, emphasis on open, open MRI. And so they set it up, and when I get there, one of the first things I ask the person who's going to do, be doing the MRI, I say, how long is this gonna last? And you know, this is just the way my sick mind works, okay? And so how long is it gonna last? And let's say they say it's gonna last 30 minutes. The way I figure that out is I say, okay, that's about eight songs. Because I'm gonna have the headset on, I'm gonna be listening to Christian music, and so I've got my hands, be still, but I'm counting the songs. Okay, that's three. All right, we're getting there. That's four. Oh, we're halfway there. That's five. I count it down, and because I know when the end is going to be, I'm able to deal with the problem. But for David, there's no end in sight. He's been dealing with it for years. He's been struggling in this situation for years, and there is no end to this circumstance that he can see. And so Psalm 13 is about how David dealt with that. It's only six verses long, but please don't make the mistake to think that David went from despair to praise in the course of a minute, minute and a half, the time it takes you to read it. This is six verses that describe a process that took years for him to work through. And as we look at it, we're gonna look at it this way, two verses, one and two, three, four, five, six, each describe a phase in this process that David is going through. We're going to look at it in this way, from a physical posture that David took at that time and an action that corresponds to that physical posture. Okay, here's how it's gonna work. First one, verses one and two, David is on his face. And what's he doing? He's complaining. He's on his face complaining. So what what are his complaints? What is he complaining about? Verse one, he starts out and basically says, God, you have forgotten me. You've forgotten me. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He's basically saying, God, I feel that you've ignored me. I feel that you've abandoned me. I feel that that God, somehow you've become disinterested in me. 
In essence, he's saying, God, I have prayed, I have prayed, I have prayed, and you have not answered. How, God, how long is it going to be before you answer my prayer? He makes another complaint. He says, you don't care anymore. Again, in verse one, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? See, the hiding of one's face, that terminology in the culture meant a, an, it was a sign of an intentional creation of distance or disregard of an individual. In other words, it would be like us saying, they turned their back on me. You know, when you describe someone that was close to you, that was a friend of yours, maybe you know someone that you had a tremendous relationship with, but then they let you down and you would say, well, when I was in need, they just turned their back on me. And that's what David is saying in this. He said, you've just, you don't care anymore because you've turned your face from me. You see, I have 10 grandchildren. This is sort of the way I look at it. I have 10 grandchildren, and if one of my grandchildren was in need of help, and I had the capacity to help them, and nothing was keeping me from helping them, but I didn't help them, the conclusion that they would draw as they are pleading in my direction for help is that my grandfather doesn't care about me. And so David is crying out to God. He's on his face saying, God, you don't care about me anymore. And the third complaint, verse two, he said, I, I had to take matters into my own hands. In other words, God, you weren't helping me, so I had to do it myself. Verse two, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long, God? He's basically saying, God, I, I called and I called and I called. You didn't answer, so I had to figure out a way to deal with this circumstance myself. And the problem is every plan that I've come up with didn't work, and so the, the result of that is it's just sorrow heaped upon sorrow upon sorrow all day long, day after day after day. There's no relief in sight, only more sorrow. So I think some of the greatest advice in Scripture, which the Bible's filled with great advice, but one of the greatest little pieces of advice is in Proverbs 3, 5, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and this is it, do not lean on your own understanding. When you're going through a difficult time, when you're facing a crisis in your life, don't buy into the idea that I've got to figure this out myself. I know how to fix this. I know how to work this out. The problem is our understanding is not the level of God's understanding. He knows exactly what's going on. And when we take the matter into our own hands, we're just going to create more problems. You see, one of the quickest ways to complicate an already difficult situation is to take matters into your own hands. Trust God, let him give you his wisdom, and then follow his leadership 
in his direction. But then he has a fourth complaint. He says, I resent what you're putting me through. Verse two, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, even my enemies are laughing at me. You can almost hear him say, God, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand this mistreatment. And God, how long is this mistreatment going to go on? And he probably even said those words that we learn when we're just little kids, when we're complaining to our parents, God, this is just not fair. God, you must resent me to be putting me through this, knowing how good I've been. Now here's the question. So those are the four accusations, the four complaints. Now the question is, were those complaints true? Had God abandoned him? Had God forsaken him? Had God rejected him? Was God treating him unfairly? Well, the answer is no, those accusations weren't true. But here's the thing, they felt true to David. He felt that way. And so because his feelings were now what was in charge of his life, he's now being driven by feelings and not truth, his feelings have replaced what was really true What he believes now is according to feelings, so what is true according to the truth is just pushed aside. He knows the truth about God. He knows who God really is. He knows that God really loves him. But he can't get back to that point because he's being controlled by his feelings and by his emotions. And see, the danger in that is this, that feelings tend to create their own reality. You say, well, God gave us feelings, and and he did. They're they're a blessing in that regard. We're created in in the image of God, and so we had these wonderful feelings to be able to experience the world and and the things around us. But our feelings are, are affected by the fall just like every other part of us, right? And so if we're not careful, our feelings will begin to create their own reality. And that's what was going on with David. His reality about God now was not truth, it was a reality based upon how he felt at the moment. But here's the thing, we don't need to be too hard on David, right? We don't need to judge him too harshly about this. Because again, he's been going through this for years. This crisis has been going on for years. There have been no intermissions. There have been no TV timeouts like a, a, a sporting event. There's not been a substitute that could come in and say, hey, David, take a break, take a breather, you know, rest a little bit. I'll handle it for now. I'll take the load. I'll take the responsibility of the stress that you're under. No, he's had to deal with this all by himself. And here's the reality for us. This is what we, as we read the experience of David, this is what we have to remember. Sooner or later, you're going to be where David is. 
Sooner or later, you're gonna find yourself in an extended trial and you're gonna call out to God and it will appear as if he is not going to answer. You're gonna try to figure out how to get out of the circumstance and you're gonna realize that nothing works. You're gonna go from the highest hopes to the, to the deepest depths of, uh, of despair. So often it'll be like a roller coaster and your stomach's gonna cry out, I can't take this anymore. And meanwhile, those around you that aren't even living for God are gonna be living the good life in a palace while you're crying out to God in a cave. And people will say, I, I would never do that. I know God's good, I know God's great, I know God's working for my, I know that, so I would never get in that place. I would never go into the depths of despair like that. What a quote, or to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, if you can't relate to the words of Psalm 13 verses one and two now, hold on, one day you will. You'll understand what David's going through. See, David had been sensitive to the presence of God almost his entire life. And now all of a sudden God was distant. He didn't sense him, didn't feel him. So what does David do? Well, he complained, but does he just complain? No, he goes after God with this sort of holy passion, and so that's why we see David doing this. He goes from his face, he rises up to his knees, and instead of complaining, he's now praying. Not a complaint but praying in verses three and four. See, the test of your faith is not when you readily can sense the presence of God in your life. And it's not when you can easily look around and see the blessings and the goodness of God as he's at work in your life. You see, the real test of your faith is when God is distant and you can't feel him and you can't see him. So in that state, he complains, but now he prays. And what are his requests? He begins by requesting God, look and answer. Look and answer. In verse three, he says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Now, it's so easy just to read those words. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. But as David was praying it, I don't think that's the way he prayed it. I think he prayed it with intense passion. I think he cried out to God, look, look at me. The God who he felt had turned his face. He's now crying out, God, look at me. I sort of experienced something similar to that just the other night. Uh, my wife and I were at home. We were watching television and I made some offhanded comment about something and which I know, you know, that that's hard to believe that I would make a smart aleck comment. Uh, but uh, I did. And, uh, and my wife was responding to my smart aleck comment 
And I wasn't paying attention to what she was saying. I just kept watching TV. And all of a sudden I heard her say, look at me. It was sort of subdued, you know, not loud, not a lot of passion in it, just look at me. And my response was to keep watching TV. To which I then heard, look at me. (laughs) To which I responded to her passionate request. (laughs) And she had some things she needed to say about my comment and I acknowledged that I heard her. And then when she was finished, I said this, I'm gonna put you in my sermon Sunday. (laughs) So I did. But the second time she said it, there was a little more passion in it. And I think when David was crying out to God, this was not just an unemotional statement, God, look at me. It was with all the passion that he had inside of him. God, look at me. Look at me and answer me. Look at me and respond to me. That was David's prayer. God, look. Answer, look, answer. You know, sometimes life can arrange itself in such a way that we are just overwhelmed by the circumstance that we're in. And there are times that the emotional strain and even the spiritual strain of what we're dealing with in our lives can become so difficult that it's hard for us to even formulate the words to make a prayer. I would suggest in times like that, if all you can say is just, God, look, answer. That's a pretty good prayer. Look at me, God. Answer me, God. But he asked for something else. He asked that God would give him new perspective. In verse three, he says, light up. And a lot of translations use the word enlighten. Light up or enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying, God, help me to see things differently. See, I've been in this mode, God, where I'm just taking counsel in my own soul daily. I'm, I'm just feeding myself these thoughts and my perspective has become distorted. God, help me to see things different. Help me to see things from your vantage point. Let me to know your perspective on this. You see, when you lose perspective in the middle of a crisis, You're in danger of your whole world collapsing and around you. At least that's what it will feel like. Everything is just falling apart. You see, I I think that we most often lose perspective when we operate in isolation. When in the midst of our crisis, we isolate ourselves from the people who love us and the people who would speak truth into us. We isolate ourselves instead of getting outside of ourselves and outside of our problems. And when you're alone and when you're isolated, your mind will begin to play tricks on you. Your mind will begin to tell you that, you know, things that aren't true, like, again, this is unfair. You don't deserve this. You've done nothing wrong. 
you've been faithful all along. It'll tell you, look around at uh, you know, all, all these people. They're not as good as you are. They don't live as holy as you live. But look how they've got a better house than you. They've got a better car than you. They, they've got better kids than you. They've got a better bank account than you. And we just begin to buy the idea that God is not fair. And we voice those things and it's almost as if we think that's a prayer, but that's not really a prayer. That's just sort of a pity party, right? Oh God, woe is me, woe is me. And David began to say, God, I need to see things differently. I need to get outside of my own brain on this. Enlighten my eyes, help me to look at things a little more clearly. You see, proper perspective views circumstances in the light of God's character instead of viewing God's character in the light of circumstances. See, David's in a situation where he's overwhelmed with his emotions. His emotions are driving him, and his emotions are coloring his view of the character of God. That's why he could say, God, you've abandoned me. God, you don't love me. God, you don't care for me. Proper perspective is when we see God and the vision of who God is and the character of God then colors our circumstance. We see our circumstance through God's eyes and through God's perspective. And so David at, at, at the beginning was seeing it in the reverse order. And so now he's praying, God, help me to see things differently. So he prays this prayer, this passionate prayer. And what's the impact of that prayer? So David, who began on his feet complaining, who had the courage to rise to his knees to pray, is now on his feet praising. Again, don't think this happened in the course of six verses. It didn't happen in the course of a minute, minute and a half. It took a period of time. The question is, if, if, if it started with complaining and now it's ending with praising, when in between those two did his circumstance change? When did God answer? When did everything work out? And the answer is, it didn't. His circumstances have not changed. He's still in the same situation. In fact, he'll stay in this situation for a number of years longer. You see, David is in that place that none of us want to be. He's waiting. You know what the toughest thing about waiting is? Waiting. That's the hard part. And so the question that we need to ask and the lesson we need to learn is what did David do in the waiting? What action did he take? What decisions did he make while he was still waiting on God? First, he chose to trust God. Verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Notice that that's past tense. He said, I have trusted it's as if all of a sudden he had a moment of clarity as he's being critical of God and he says, well, wait a minute. 
I've always trusted in God. And the word trust means to throw one's weight upon. He said, I've always trusted God. And there have been times in my life in the past, I just threw myself in the arms of God in crisis and God has always been faithful. God has always been there. His steadfast love has always been proven to me. So if that's the case, if it's worked in the past, I'm gonna trust him now and I'm going to trust him in the days to come. One of the things the enemy tries to do whenever we're deep in despair is to block our memory of who God is and what God has done for us. And so David said, duh, I've trusted God. He said, I've made the decision then, I'll trust him now. And another decision I'll make because I trust him is that I rejoice in the hope of deliverance. Verse five, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The word salvation there means deliverance. So had David been delivered from his crisis? No. Had his feelings even changed at this point? No. There's nothing that says his feelings have changed. It just says that David has made a decision to trust God And because he can trust God, he'll rejoice in a deliverance that hasn't even happened yet. He's not telling God what the deliverance will look like. He's not telling him when the deliverance has to come. He's not imposing himself on the will of God at all or the sovereignty of God at all. He's just saying the God I've trusted in the past, I trust today that he's going to work this out according to the plan and purpose he has for my life. So I'm going to rejoice in the deliverance that will come. And then he says this, his last decision. So I'm just gonna worship in spite of my feelings. Verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Man, do you see this? It starts out, how long, oh Lord, are you gonna mistreat me? To now, I choose to worship you in spite of how I feel. I choose to declare truth in spite of how I feel. That's what David chose to do while he waited. What do you do while you're in the waiting period? Waiting for God to respond, waiting for God to answer, waiting for God's deliverance. I think what you do is just like David did, get your eyes fixed on God, begin to declare truth in spite of your feelings. In spite of how you feel, you declare that God, I may not see you at work in my life right now, I may not feel that you're at work in my life right now, but I declare that I know that you will never abandon me, you will never reject me, you will never ignore me, and that I know this truth, you are always working for my good. So somehow, in the midst of this, you're working, God, I don't see it, I don't feel it, but I declare it. And I declare it because I have trusted you and you've been faithful to me. So how do we respond as we 
look at a man who went through a valley of deep despair. I think the way we respond, maybe that's you. Maybe you're in the waiting right now. And what you need to do is just begin to declare truth, not feed the feeling, but declare truth over those feelings, in spite of those feelings, in spite of your circumstance, in the face of your enemy. I know this to be true. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want you to stand to your feet and the band is going to give us an opportunity to just simply do that, do that to declare truth that God is working in our midst. And this may be the moment that you need to say, God, I give you this problem. I give you this crisis and God, I trust you with this and I declare truth over it in Jesus name.